Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It is November 14th, 2023, and this is another edition of the By Jove Show. Yes, indeed, with John Ronnie McIver. Yeah, and I'm going to follow through on some of the things that I said the other day. Um, you can catch the show. Last one was about war photography, and um, one of the points I left out, I think, when I discussed that whole issue is, um, you know, it kind of smacks a little bit of this... Uh, disaster porn thing that people talk about, you know, um, similar to when uh, people, you know, there's a hurricane happens or some kind of natural disaster happens, an earthquake, and people go there and they just kind of throw themselves into it and, um, you know, uh, cover it with abandon and, um, you know, just kind of show these images and report on it like it's some kind of um, freak show in a way. I think that's the sort of thing we have to get away from, especially in journalism. You know, it's one thing to, I guess, be, you know, into that as an individual, but certainly as a as a professional, you should you should um, shy away from that. Of course, that would not be encouraged in a news organization because they want to create a certain amount of sensationalism that will get eyeballs on their on their product. But um, I think in the in the um, interest of the victims and, and just good taste in general, um, you know, got to resist this kind of idea, you know, because it sort of becomes like a fetish, you know, you lose, you lose sight of the, the reality of the situation and you probably end up doing things or taking attitudes that you wouldn't take normally under extraordinary circumstances, but, um, best not to, you know, in the hindsight of the editing room or, you know, wh- whoever is making decisions, uh, at a higher level, you know, any, any kind of, uh, disaster porn or, or this kind of, um, you know, um, morbid curiosity into the, uh, into the affairs of others, um, particularly when un, under extreme conditions, particularly negative extreme conditions, I think should be avoided. But that, that was one of the things that kind of occurred to me that I forgot to talk about. And so I just brought that up very quickly. Um, I won't get too much more into that, but that, that's a whole other subject, I guess. And there's a lot, a lot of psychological, psychological things involved in that, but, um, because, you know, it, it is, it is true when you see an accident on the side of the road, you know, that's when the rubbernecking starts. Um, I've seen it a million times, right? You're going down a highway and there's an accident on the other side of the rail and going in the other direction. And, uh, suddenly your, your traffic slows down and, comes to a halt, even though there's absolutely nothing impeding you other than your morbid curiosity and what's going on on the other side. You know, most of the time you can't see it, but people still have to look. So uh, a warning, curiosity killed the cat, you know? Um, in some ways, I think it's courageous to, to see in, in certain circumstances when it, when it, has, a, when it, when it has a purpose, right? If, if seeing American soldiers dead and dying is going to going to, you know, um, protect us against going to war or making us li- less likely to go do it, then all, all, I'm all for it, you know, and that's why you have to rec- recruit young people. I mean, the, the idea that you recruit run- young people for war because they're physically capable of doing it really has very little to do with it because 30 and 40 and even 50 year olds could go into combat physically, um, you know, especially these days when it's more like a video game, you know, you're, you're just a, 
you're an operator of the weapons, essentially. Um, uh, I think the the point being is that you know young people are much more impressionable, and uh, can't tell you how many times I've had clients who are teenagers or young adults who are about to make that jump into the military, and uh, you know my job as a, a therapist, let's say, if I'm working with them, is not to discourage them or make decisions for them, you know. Um, but in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, my God, um, just be be fully aware of what's going to happen to you once you join. And um, I have some personal experience because I watched my brother go through the whole process and saw him get disillusioned and put into danger for no particular reason um, other than, you know, wanting to flex muscle and, and continue to control, you know, the, the world. So... Uh, Anyway, I'm going to turn away from that subject, but we're going to get back to the war because there have been so many things that have happened um, since since last time I spoke about the what's going on in the Middle East. So, but before I get to that, I, I did see a program on 60 Minutes that's somewhat um, related to this this topic because on Sunday, 60 Minutes ran a story about Iran, and of course, whenever there's any conflict anywhere, um, you know, the United States tries to figure out who who else can we target. You know, we can target, let's say, the bad guys who are the obvious bad guys. You know, in the, in this sense, it's it's Hamas. And now I'm not even calling them bad guys because uh, you know I don't I don't fall for that. You know, simple characterization. But you know, they did carry out this planned attack, and it was pretty heinous, and and it, and it's awful and should never be done. But um, you can understand why they feel desperate. I mean, again, it's not a both sidesism thing where you say, well, it's just two countries and they're kind of both at odds and they're both equally wrong and they're both, well, that, that might be true in some conflicts, but it's, it's certainly not true in many conflicts. And it seems like these days, the more asymmetrical something is, the more likely um, a war is to break out, uh, for instance, with Russia and Ukraine and you know, when, when someone sees that they can possibly have an easy win, in a sense, um, they're willing to take it, that risk and lose, lose lives in order to achieve that goal. But, you know, if it's mutually assured destruction or, you know, where both sides are going to end up just in a, in a, in a miserable situation, it seems like in some ways that's a deterrent. So that's, that's, a, that's a good thing, I guess, um, even though it's coming from a negative place. Anyway, um, 60 Minutes, Leslie Stahl and producers had a, uh, had a very interesting take on um, what was going on in other parts of the world. So they had this whole story about um, Iranian, um, basically, spies or Secret Service people, um, clandestine operations, right, um, going around the world and trying to at least, at the very least, intimidate people, if not um, actually put bounties on people's heads, sometimes for millions of dollars or even less. In John Bolton's case, it was only $300,000. I was like, wow, they must not care about you that much. But anyway, I mean, it was interesting because, you know, if you jump into the story, you know, without any kind of context, which they didn't provide really, um, not much of it anyway, you would think, oh my God, the Iranians are really horrible people. I mean, how could they do this? You know, they're going around and harassing 
American government officials. They're harassing, um, you know, the, the government officials, for instance, they were going after were Mike Esper, the, the former defense secretary, Mike Pompeo, um, John Bolton, and even some civilians like uh, Iranian dissidents who are who are here, have asylum here in, in the United States, but uh, who are outspoken about various subjects, uh, including a young woman who, you know, is kind of on the, in, you know, uh, is a dissident who is encouraging young women in Iran to, you know, free themselves of having to wear the hijab and hajib, I think. Sorry. Sorry for the improper pronunciation there. But, um, and, you know, they have a whole website where women in Iran take off their garment and then they you know, photograph them and they put it up and it's, it's kind of an act of civil disobedience. And, and, you know, honestly, um, you know, I think that's a courageous thing to do. And, uh, you might, you know, kind of question, you know, if that's, if, if it's worth risking your liberty and life for, but, um, it is a form of protest and it's, 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 it's not like they have a lot of options there because it is a, a brutal kind of autocratic situation, a theocratic in a way too, because, you know, you, you have to, you have to align not just with the government, uh, what, what the government says, but in some ways, uh, you know, their version of what, whatever it is, some kind of is Islam, um, focused religion. Uh, it, it seems even though it's not necessarily endemic to the religion and, and, and whatever brand they're practicing is, is tends to be a little bit extreme and, um, just like the people here, the evangelicals in America, it's kind of a similar thing over there. But um, they they have a lot of sway, and they almost uh, are are superior to the the secular government. So and there and there's a kind of a blurring of the lines. It's not as it's not like it is here. Even though there is a lot of blurring here, it's it's much more obvious over there. But um, yeah, so they're sending people, and they've actually caught some people, you know, who are trying to. Uh, trying to hurt people over here. And that's, of course, a horrible thing. But, um, you know, um, yeah, if, if you only if you take it out of the context of, of the situation, of the total situation over, over many years now, America and other allies have had, you know, sanctions on Iran for a very long time, making their lives very difficult, you know, um, making it hard for them to operate as country, much like Cuba and other places, the United States has done this too. And, uh, but on top of that, they, they, they didn't really spend much time talking about, um, what, 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 what is considered by most, you know, people in authority who don't have a stake in it, um, an assassination attempt that the United States carried out against, um, one of a very important Iranian, um, I think he was a, he was a general, but he was he was very influential, I think, in the in the nuclear pro program, which is another thing that plays into this thing. But he was basically assassinated by drone. So this general, Soleimani, went to to uh, Iraq for a meeting of some sort, and when he was in Iraq, um, the United States has sent a drone and it's, and basically assassinated him. Now that's a violation of international law. Um, there's a whole bunch of you know, theories on it, but, um, you know, you know, when that, when something like that happens, it's, it's interesting because the American public doesn't, doesn't really understand the impact of that. Right. We do, we just kind of say, oh, some guy over there got, 
you know, got killed, and he's just some other guy, you know, he's just one, another, one's one of thousands, you know, but, but this, this person was kind of special in a way, because he was a hero to Iranians for his contributions to their, you know, their statehood and whatever, uh, and, um, and he was, he was assassinated in broad daylight, and not, it wasn't even covered up or anything, it was completely just, yeah, we did it, and too bad for you guys, um, but you got to understand, when you do things like that, right, there are going to be repercussions. And the repercussions are exactly what was happening in the 60 Minutes piece. But they, they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't tie the two together terribly um, coherently or correctly, in my opinion, so that you get this, this piece that's just simply truncated. So it starts here and ends there, but without any context. And, and that's a very um, you know, dishonest uh, piece of journalism. Uh, and 60 Minutes, uh, of course, is... I used to say there were only a couple couple of shows that I would work for, and 60 Minutes was one of them, but 60 Minutes has gone the way of every other show and is pandering to the commercial interests of the of the networks and the corporations that own them, and at this point, they're no better than anybody else. Um, and this is kind of yellow journalism that, that is even getting into 60 Minutes, which is quite a shame, and uh, I, think, I think it's it's horrible. But... Um, you know, because now you can't even trust 60 Minutes. I mean, you wonder when, you know, 60 Minutes is one of those shows I would have worked with. Um, Nightline was a work, show that I, lo I worked on. But uh, the other one was Frontline, PBS Frontline. I thought, yeah, if I, if I could work for them, that would be good. But I'm wondering how long it's going to take for Frontline to change, you know, to become, it's already starting to become a little bit more, you know, a little more sexy in its production value. But, you know, soon after that, I think they're going to, the pressure, especially from the higher ups, because now in PBS we have people who are are are, are kind of more in the corporate mindset and, and a little bit on the conservative side. So um, there has been a backlash against PBS for many many years. Um, you know they're always um, sort of accused of being far left left wing um, in nature, and uh, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean I agree with Chomsky at you know the the news business is very slanted on the conservative side, as is academia. And if you can't see that, I think you're. It's because, like Chomsky says, you have you have a bit of a perspective issue because you yourself are probably quite conservative, even even if you identify as a liberal. But anyway, um, let's move on because I have a whole bunch of articles that popped up um, that I thought were interesting and. Um, I bookmarked a bunch of them, and uh, they, they kind of, you know, have have something to do with, um, with with the the war that's going on currently. But they're a little bit um, more on the edge of things. So the first thing I want to get into is, um, you know, Rashida Tlaib, who is of course um, in a position of power. She's a Palestinian American. Um, she's a, a a figure in a congresswoman. In in in, um, in our government structure, and uh, boy, is she getting a lot of shit. Um, really interesting. Um, I think really the reason she's getting it is because she she used a certain phrase, right? That 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 is that is really getting um, re get, getting under people's collars, and and so the phrase is from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. You know, and so I think when you're Palestinian. Um, you know, in, in general, I think you, you mean that symbolically. And I don't think you, 
included in that is uh, a, a, a wish that Israel perish 100%. Um, I think there are certainly people who are Palestinian or be behind the Palestinian cause who would be happy if that happened, but I think they're by far a minority. And uh, honestly, you can kind of understand after 75 years of, 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 you know, kind of killing people, displacing people, uh, uh, truncating your military, your, um, your political power, you know, being occupied, apartheid state, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, th I think, you know, in some ways that, uh, you know, it, it makes sense at least, you know, hyperbolically for people to say things like that, right? Because when people say things like that, it's a little bit like blowing off steam. It's right. You know, when you're in the car and, you know, someone cuts you off and you say, I could kill that person, you know, well, you don't really literally mean it, right? But in the moment you're angry and symbolically, you know, it's a way of, it's hyperbolic language, mostly, I think. Um, but I mean, if, if the, uh, let's say Arab states, or the Arab coalition, you know, those who were antagonistic towards Israel had, had a chance to eliminate Israel. I, I mean, I wonder, I, I think it might be likely that that could happen. I wouldn't want to see that happen, certainly, but, you know, the more I think about this two-state solution, the more I think it's it's become ridiculous because, you know, it, it makes it almost impossible to come to a solution because they're just not going to compromise on, on, on certain things like how Jerusalem is going to be handled and how the settlements are going to work and et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, at a certain point, we're, we're going to have to look for a one-state solution, um, and I don't know how that would be implemented because I thought I started to think of how, how you could do that. Right, um, it would take an, an enormous amount of courageous um, willpower on both sides to be able to, you know, especially in this period of, you know, high distrust, to trust each other enough to, you know, to, to go forward with this thing. But um, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see. I, I'm a little bit on. The, I have to think about that. Of course, I'm not an expert on any of this, but I'd have to think and really, really try to think about that much harder. Um, obviously, there are very savvy people out there who have been thinking about this for decades and still can't come up with an idea. But sometimes uh, you need you need you know you need um, influence from outside, right? To to you know see it with a little bit more fresh eyes and see it a little more dispassionately. Where you know you haven't had family members killed by one or the other side, etc. So um, I don't know. I think it's going to have to become uh, back on an international stage and have it have it worked out. I don't think that's happened for a while. But anyway, um, Congresswoman is really getting beat up. And, um, you know, it's it's really crazy, this idea that she was censured, and, and including by a lot of uh, Democratic uh, or fellow fellow congresspeople. Um, I thought it was it was kind of kind of a, a little a little strong. And, and I think, um, you know, it's it's interesting to watch it because it's there's a lot of jockeying going on here in terms of PR, right? So, you know, in this article, it says, gripping a photo of her city, her grandmother, who lives in the occupied West Bank, she defended her stance and declared that, quote, will not be silenced and will not let you distort my words. I know there's nothing wrong with that because I think that's what's going on. I can't believe I have to say this, but Palestinian people are not disposable. The cries of the Palestinian and Israeli children sound no different to me, you know, um, you know, I don't know that anybody thinks Palestinian people are disposable, but people certainly act that way, 
Um, you know, on the record, they would never admit that. But, you know, actions speak louder than words. So I think that statement, to some extent, holds holds water. But um, what else is going on in this article? Yeah, a censure against Tlaib, proposed by the Republican Congressman Rich McCormick of Georgia, accused her of promoting false narratives regarding the October 7, 2023 Hamas attack on Israel and for calling for the destruction of the state of Israel. Now, you know, yeah, I don't think that's what it means, even if you take it literally. Um, but, you know, if, if you want to believe that that's what she means, right, if you want to mischaracterize what she's saying, then I guess you have the right to, to do what you did. But I don't think it's a positive uh, contribution. It just makes it worse. It's like throwing gasoline on a fire. Um, yeah, so... She also said that she accused Joe Biden of supporting genocide. And, and, you know, I mean, the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that, you know, according to most of the spokespeople from the UN, this is a genocide. Um, so I'm willing to buy onto that definition if they are. Um, you know, I think, you know, many terms have, have become exaggerated, too, because uh, to me, a genocide means there's kind of a pre a pre a, a pre determined plan that you've come up with. You've thought about it very carefully, and you're now executing it. That, that is not the, apparently the the definition of a genocide. Just just like, you know, when you had when we have a pandemic or an epidemic, right? I, I would have thought that COVID would have been would have been a, a, an epidemic because a pandemic typically means not only that it it's worldwide and far-reaching, but that it it's over the course of not just one period of time, but several periods of time, separate periods of time. And that, that's not what COVID, at least at this point, was. But, um, I mean, it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, every, everybody kind of knows. But for the for the sake of hyperbole, right, we have to be careful with the words. So, you know, um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, so... She will not be deterred by a censure motion passed by the House of Representatives. Not a bone in my body believes that, said somebody who has worked with her previously. Rashida is, is a person on a mission. She is fiercely protective of the people she loves. She will stop at nothing for her to support or not to support a cause. It's in a theoretical political question. It's a question of whether or not her family members deserve to stay alive. It's the life or death of people she's directly connected to. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. His commitment has fortified her against a shocking degree of personal abuse that would have felled other politicians. Yeah. When I went to work for her, I couldn't believe how often the phone rang. You couldn't even imagine how many vile, unacceptable, bad words could be strung together in sentences. It will be a sentence jam-packed with sexism, racism, Islamophobia, just all of it. I believe it, yeah. Yeah. In the immediate aftermath of the Hamas attack, she faced backlash from Republicans and some Democrats over her initial statement in which she expressed grief for the loss of Palestinian and Israeli lives but did not mention Hamas, though she did call for ending the occupation and dismantling the apartheid system. Now, you know, I kind of feel similar to her. You know, Hamas is, you, you can't just, you know, even though they did something that was horrible, you can't just, you know, broad stroke them to such an extent that, you know, they're seen as a 100% evil institution. They were elected by the people. You might question the election, but, you know, they were the representatives of the people, and they still are. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not all up to, you know, planning atrocities. 
there's much more to it. They have a much more a deeper history. It goes back decades and decades, you know, and um, they've done a lot of good things. And in some ways, if you actually read about their history a little bit, you 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 see that there's almost a tie to the the model that the Black Panthers used to use in terms of community building, right? And so, a lot of the you know the food distribution and uh, educational systems and hospital healthcare systems and things like that are were were built basically by Hamas, right? And Hamas was backed by certainly Iranian Iranian money. But uh, in that respect, I think we should all be for, for those kind of things, right? And so they're not a 100% evil kind of institution, no matter how you'd like to, you know, you'd like to characterize them. But this is what we do in times of crisis, right? We take extremes. Um, she drew additional fire from her critics after after being one of nine Democrats to vote against a House resolution, subsequently adopted by a vote of 412 four to 10, declaring solidarity with Israel after the Hamas attacks. Now, I don't understand why you have to have these declarations. You know, you can have your feelings and you, it can affect what, what's going on in, in Congress, but to have these declarations, especially in the heat of the moment, again, seems like you're just, you know, I mean, I know it sounds all heroic and you want to pat yourself on the back, but... Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a little, it's a little weird. Explaining her opposition in a floor debate on the 25th of October, she said the resolution was not a serious examination of the root causes of the violence we are witnessing and doubles down on decades of failed policy. Yeah, that's a good point. Unconditional U.S. military support for Israel has failed to bring peace and justice to the region, she said. That's true. She added, achieving a just and lasting peace where Israelis and Palestinians have equal rights and freedoms and where no person lives in the fear for their safety requires ending the blockade, occupation, and dehumanizing system of apartheid. Yeah, I think so. Her opponents have also pointed to her use of the river to the sea slogan while to leave. And others justify the phrase of an aspirational call for freedom, human rights, and peaceful coexistence. Critics say it is a pro-Hamas chant calling for the eradication of the Jewish state. Well, that might be true, too. But just because Hamas say it that way doesn't mean that she... See, there's a lot of logical fallacy in a lot of this. So we have to think about it carefully. Um, yeah, Congressman Tolibus repeatedly insisted on using inflammatory language that dangerously amplifies Hamas propaganda and disinformation. Snyder, who is a Democratic congressman from Illinois, um... Accused her refusing to remove a tweet blaming Israel for a devastating explosion at Al Ali Baptist Hospital in Gaza City that killed hundreds, despite Israeli denials and U.S. intelligence claims that a misfired Palestinian rocket has caused damage. Well, you know she isn't responsible for necessarily, you know, correcting, you know, what what she, you know. I mean, you should try to correct your your statements, but you know. It's it's not necessarily her job to do that. Um, I mean, she could honestly have believed it, as many other people did, that Israel was, was responsible for it. Even Bernie Sanders, a left-wing senator from Vermont, who has spoken out forcefully against Israel's military campaign in Gaza, while stopping short of a ceasefire call, voiced mute criticism of Tlaib's use of the slogan. See, I mean, Bernie Sanders has just given up. It's pretty clear. Calling her friend who had been shaken by the bloodshed in Gaza... We need a serious discussion on how the hell we get out of this difficult situation, maintain democracy, bring, bring peace to the world. And it ain't easy, but slogans are not going to do it on any side. Well, that's true, but 
Again, he's kind of letting her get squashed under the bus. Um, Congressman Jamal Bowman of New York, a fellow member of the Progressive Squad, who has also called for a ceasefire, dismisses the focus on the slogan as a distraction, calling to leave one of the strongest, most compassionate people I know. At least he came out and said something. I mean, it's amazing how conservative things have become. You know, people can't even voice opinions anymore without being beaten down and possibly censured or, or kicked out of whatever they're doing. So, I mean, this goes on and on, but you get the idea. Um, you know, she's a person who is going to be certainly accused of of anti-Semitism. Yeah. But here's a different take on it. Tlaib has Jewish supporters, particularly among left-wing groups, that echo her ceasefire calls and have staged demonstrations in Washington accused, accusing Israel of unleashing a genocidal war in Gaza. Congress Congresswoman Tlaib is truly an incredible person and one of the few members of Congress who, can, who genuinely cares about people, said Beth Miller, political director of Jewish Voice for Peace, a leftist group that openly describes itself as anti-Zionist. She has so much warmth and love and makes everyone feel welcome and safe around her. This is really important because we see this horrible smear campaign that turns her into the opposite of what she is, which is someone who cares deeply for Israelis who have been killed as well as Palestinians have been killed. We are proud to be her ally in this. Now, see, there's a more a more sober take on things, I think. Um, and I think you should spend more time, you know, legitimizing people who, see, if you have a group of Jewish people who are espousing the same positions that the congresswoman are, I would put a little bit more weight on their point of view because they're going against, you know, what you would consider their their innate sense of what should happen, right? So, Whereas other, all these other people are coming at it from exactly where you think they would come from it. They're staunch, extreme supporters of one view or the other. Those people are never going to be the people who are going to help in the situation. They're just throwing fire on it and they're using it for political purposes, right? To get reelected and the rest of that. You have to keep all this stuff clear in your head. What you really want is the people who, who are unusual and who are courageous and taking views that may not be popular, but are, in my opinion, the correct views. So you have Jewish people who are supporting the Palestinians people, and then you have Palestinian people who are like, well, yes, we want our freedom, and we want to live, you know, uh, you know, uh, in a in a in a situation that is that is that is, that is normalized, but we don't want it to 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 be at the expense of innocent um, Israeli lives, right? So let's let's find these people. Right? And, and let's amplify them. But see, the news business doesn't want to ampl amplify them. In some ways, to me, that is so much more, you'll get so many more eyeballs on it because I, I think it's, it's, it's really so convincing to hear from people like that. Whereas, you know, when you keep hearing the same vitriol from the extremists, you know, it might get eyeballs on your, on your coverage, but um, in the end, it's, it's destructive. Um, and you have to report on it, I guess, because that's the nature. When it when it's happening, you know, you can kind of get out there and collect the information. But you know, I think you know, editors have to th think about how to not only present the information so that they can have people, you know, subscribe to their publications, but but also to, to have some ring of truth to it and also some sort of sense of social justice behind it. Um, 
you know, as a social worker, part of our training is not just psychological. There's a social social justice part of it, and it's written into our ethical code. And, um, you know, I, I think it's actually a very good thing, even though to most people who are private practitioner psychotherapists, they really are not really concerned with social justice issues. You can be sure, though. I mean, social workers have thought very hard about this because... It was one of the way that one of the ways that they distinguished themselves from the rest of the uh, the psychotherapeutic world, uh, you know, including um, psychiatry and psychology, because those don't tend to spend a lot of time on what's happening outside, and you know, as a person in in, in your environment, right? Social work made a big big step forward by including all that in there, and I I had a hard time you know, trying to convince, I wasn't trying to convince myself, but if, if I had been trying to convince myself that none of that was important, it, it, I didn't do a very good job of it, because in the end, I, I felt, yeah, this, this, is, this is very much important. And so in, in journalism, and you see there are, there are certain trends in journalism to, to kind of get on the social justice bandwagon to some extent. You know, if you're going to err, it's a little bit like affirmative action. If you're going to err once on one side or the other, why shouldn't you err on the side that that repairs, right, or that or that or that helps, you know, in in the direction of the future? So I, I think, um, you know, it would be nice if journalism would would kind of take that more to heart. But um, I think at this point, it's it, it's not worried about that stuff. Um, but that article goes on and on and on. Um, the other thing that I mentioned the other day was this, this whistleblower in Australia. So uh, this is from Al Jazeera. Um, Australian who blew whistle on alleged Afghan war crimes stands trial. David, so this is something that happened many years ago, right? And we're still, it's still highly controversial. But, you know, and it, it is tied to Julian Assange and all the other whistleblowers historically speaking, but David McBride, a former army lawyer who revealed information about alleged Australian war crimes in Afghanistan, could be facing a life sentence if found guilty in a trial that starts on Monday. While Australia has established an independent special investigator into alleged war crimes committed by Australian troops in Afghanistan, supporters of McBride point out he is facing a criminal trial before any of the perpetrators of the alleged wrongdoing he helped reveal. Yeah, so yeah, it kind of tells you what, what the priority is, right? You know, the priority is not human rights and human dignity. The priority is, you know, power and defending the power system. Um, and so that's that's not a good way to, to go about it. Um, it's a little bit like a bureaucracy. A bureaucracy, you know, starts working for itself, not for the people that it's supposed to, to be helping, right, eventually. It's the same thing with, with this. If If you're... Bottom line is about power, right, and influence and domination, either military or economically. And that comes at the expense of, of what you do with people in the real world, you know, in terms of morals and ethics. And I think you've, you've gone terribly off, off, off line and, and astray. Yeah, so it seems strange that when clearly so many things went wrong in the wars, of Afghanistan and Iraq, that I am the first person to face trial, McBride told Al Jazeera in an interview before his trial began. It's extremely likely that I'll be facing prison, and not just short-term, but for quite a long time. And so he, he, 
he was open about the fact that he leaked documents to ABC. That's the Australian broadcasting company. I don't know what it stands for, but it's not our ABC here in the United States. I've been charged with leaking documents. I've never made a secret of that. Instead, he wants the conversation to be about whether it was right to speak out. What I want to be discussed is whether or not I was justified in doing so, the whistleblower says. Yeah, so, you see, even after decades have gone by, it's still controversial, still, you know, um, you know, if the government went about trying to, you know, leaking is just an accepted practice at this point in journalism, and, and government institutions don't necessarily oppose it, um, but you know, it's considered a necessary part of the the health of a of a of a democracy, but it happens all the time. But um, you know, if it happens on a high profile, highly controversial case, that's when they're gonna the prosecutors are gonna come in and and prosecute. It's like a little bit like murder. You know, I mean, uh, people are gonna go after the most heinous murders first, and, and then the petty petty criminal types are always, you know, kind of left for last. It's, it, it makes sense to, sense to some degree, but um, it's a little backwards in this case because there, there's some, the leaking that he's doing uh, serves uh, an important function in a, in a healthy democracy, whereas other kind of leaking is, is almost irrelevant. Um, but anyway, so yeah, you've got uh, this guy who's on his heels right um so more reactionary kind of behavior from certain people in positions of power um here's another one where from al jazeera how are our gaza casualty updates affected by israeli attacks on hospitals Hospitals in northern Gaza are under heavy assault by the Israeli military, making it difficult to document casualty figures. The Ministry of Health in Gaza has been struggling to update casualty figures as Israeli forces have increasingly targeted hospitals and allied services in the besieged enclave. The United Nations has confirmed that the collapse of services and communications at hospitals in northern Gaza is seriously hampering health officials. So when was the last time we got an update? How has the ministry managed its figures so far, and how dire is the situation with hospitals in Gaza? Now, this is I, you know, this is all the reason I'm talking about this article at all is because you know I've noted that anytime there's Israeli documentation of what's going on, it's just it's kind of reported verbatim, right? This is you know with the implicit you know suggestion that you know those sources are are legitimate or more legitimate when it comes to Gaza, you know, it's always purportedly in quotes, according to, could not be confirmed, you know, this is what they said, we can't necessarily trust it, you know, that kind of thing. So you you know you're coming from a fairly racist and Islamophobic or whatever other kind of, you know, cultural, you know, label you want to put on it. But it's it's clear that, you know, if, if you get figures from Gaza from those people... Right, you can't trust it. But if you get it from these people, you can trust it, right? Which is the very definition of racism. Um, so they say the death toll is eleven thousand one hundred. 
Due to the targeting of hospitals and the prevention of entry of any of the bodies or wounded, the Ministry of Health is unable on Saturday to issue accurate statistics for the number of dead and injured during the past hours. So you're very likely um, you know, going to see that this is underreported right, as a result. Yeah, that's what they say later in the article. Um, nearly 3,000 Palestinians remain missing and may be trapped or dead under the rubble, while 27,000 Palestinians have reportedly been injured. Um, how does the system work? The health ministry has previously explained its methodology for compiling data on Palestinian casualties. Uh, daily information about the killed Palestinians transferred from the decentralized hospital system to the central database of, gov of a government registry. Non-governmental hospitals use their own forms to record data about the victim as soon as they arrive. These are these forms are sent to the Health Information Center. Um, they process the data, verify its completeness, and ensures there are no duplicates or errors after the transfer is completed. So it sounds like, you know, pretty much what most people do. Most countries, most institutions. Um, deeply worrisome and frightening the World Health Organization has lost contact with its focal points in Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza. Amid horrifying reports of the hospital facing repeated attacks, there are reports that some of those who fled the hospital have been shot at, wounded, or killed. Now, you know, the Israelis are claiming that this is another case of a misfired rocket on Hamas's side. But when you have multiple strikes of a hospital and they're surrounding it, you've got to wonder. We will see what the truth is. Um, Israel's ground offensive has progressed in northern Gaza. Its forces have also increasingly focused on hospitals. Tanks have now surrounded Al-Shifa Hospital. Snipers and drones positioned all around are shooting at people. You know, still this, this idea that, you know, if, you know, Israel is claiming that, you know, that, that, that Palestinians use civilians as human shields. Well, I mean, I think that's a myth that has to be dispelled, and not only a myth, but um, that's not a good excuse for, you know, the civilians are still there, whether whether they're there because they've been forced to be there, or, or they're there by choice, or they, they, knew that they know they're being used as human shields, they're not being used, it doesn't matter, you're still killing civilians. So it should be considered um, a war crime. In my in my estimation, so and then there's this question: Is anywhere safe? UN shelters have not been spared either, and the organization has said as of Friday, 66 internally displaced people have been killed, and 588 have been injured while staying in UN shelters. So they're basically, you know, I, I don't know if they're targeting UN shelters, but they're getting hit by bombs. So there's another violation. I mean, people in the world should be a little bit outraged that, you know, United Nations um, and other kind of, um, let's say, neutral parties are, are, are being harmed by this sort of indiscriminate bombing campaign. Um, when I say UN is a neutral, I'm, uh, you know, that's, that's questionable. But let, let's just for the sake of argument say it's neutral time being. Um, so here's another interesting article out of Al Jazeera. Billionaires are teaming up for pro-Israel anti-Hamas 
Media Drive campaign is seeking million-dollar donations from dozens of the world's biggest names in media, finance, and tech. Right, so there's a, there's a huge PR campaign um, being propagated, and it's interesting because you know you Israel is is in the position of of superiority, but they still need you know to to have these people help them out, which is kind of ironic to me. You know, if you really you know believed in Israel and its and its and its you know its position, then there'd really be no no reason to have to do this, but a billion-dollar real estate tycoon in the United States is rallying support for a high-dollar media crusade to boost Israel's image and demonize the Hamas armed group amid global pro-Palestinian solidarity pro protests. So here we go. The people with the money are are chiming in, and the reason they are is because they want to take advantage of the political situation, right? Um, the media campaign called Facts for Peace another euphemistic name, is seeking million-dollar donations from dozens of the world's biggest names in media, finance, and technology, according to an email seen by the news website Semaphore. More than 50 individuals are being courted, including former Google CEO Eric Schmidt, Dell CEO Michael Dell, and financier Michael Milken. They have combined net worth of around $500 billion. Some of the individuals, such as investor Bill Ackerman, have publicly threatened to blacklist pro-Palestinian students who are critical of Israel. Okay, what happened to freedom of speech? On October 10th, Ackerman wrote on X, formerly Twitter, that he and other business executives wanted Ivy League universities to disclose the names of students who are part of organizations that signed open letters criticizing Israel, Israeli policy, policies in Gaza. Now, what kind of a world is that, right, where you have people wanting to you know, censor other people, and that is not helping the situation. They think it is, because they think they're right. Um, yeah, U.S. billionaire Barry Sternlich, who started the project, said the campaign would help Israel get ahead of the narrative, as the world has reacted to the intense, intensive Israeli attacks in the Gaza Strip. Well, get ahead of what in there? What are you, why do you need to get ahead of a narrative? If what you're doing is just... You don't need to get ahead of it. That's PR. That's spinning, right? That means see, that your your whole operation is is based on trying to um, usurp the genuine reaction of people around the world, right? You're trying to influence them to believe in what you believe in, even if it's incorrect, right? That's not that's not a very good way to go about it. If you're really interested in peace and progressive progressing things along, but that's not what these people are interested in. They're interested in staying in touch with the power structure, and, and they're opp opportunistic, the type of people who, who end up at Dante's ninth circle of hell, right? The, oppor the opportunists of the world, people who, who take other people's pain and, and, and try to profit off it. I mean, literally profit off it, because, you know, these people are, you know, very closely linked with the people in government, and, and, and the money is, is, is being you know, delved out both ways. Um, public opinion will surely shift as scenes real or fabricated by Hamas of civilian Palestinian suffering will surely erode Israel's current empathy in the world community, as it should. So why do you want to correct that? Sternlich wrote in an email soliciting contributions from the wealthy figure shortly after Hamas's October 7th attacks. We must get ahead of the narrative. There you go again. Why do you need to get ahead of the narrative? Just, just, just 
you know, tell the truth. Um, Sternlich's media drive aims to brand Hamas as a terrorist organization that is not just the enemy of evil, but of the United States. Well, I guess I can agree that it is a terrorist organization. In part, it did carry out a, a, a type of terrorist um, attack. Now, you have to say, was that terrorist attack in context a result of the mistreatment over decades um, in, that, in that region? But, you know, on the face of it, okay. But it does does it mean that it's an enemy of, of of the United States now? So he's extended it, right? Just the same way George Bush, George W. Bush, and everybody else made this a global war on terror, right? It's you're you're, he's dipping into that fallacious idea again. Um, the goal is to draw fifty million in private donations paired with a matching contribution from a Jewish charity. Hamas is is already designated as a terrorist organization by the U.S. and the European Union for its armed resistance against Israeli occupation. Well, that's an interesting sentence, right? Um, if the same thing happened here in America, let's say the Chinese came here and occupied America, would American patriots who were defending America be considered terrorists? No, of course. It, it depends, you know, who writes history, right? People in power write history. So, you know, the very fact that they call them a terrorist organization is, is mostly dependent on the fact that it's in their interest to call them a terrorist organization. Other people would call them freedom fighters, right? Okay. It's unclear which figures have donated, but the campaign has raised at least a few million dollars already, citing people familiar with the matter. Okay, so it goes on and on. The U.S. is Israel's strongest global ally, providing it with billions of dollars of aid annually and staunch diplomatic backing. Despite the mounting humanitarian crisis in Gaza, the U.S. government has continuously rebuffed global calls for a ceasefire and reiterated that Washington will not give Israel red lines in the war. On November 2nd, the U.S. Congress passed $14 billion emergency aid package for Israel. So at one time we're saying, here, here's some bombs to go kill some people. But far too many Palestinians have died, and we have to have a ceasefire. And then Israel says, well, we're not, even though we could get some of the hostages back, we're not going to have a ceasefire. So I don't know about you, but... Um, however, public support for the U.S.'s position appears to be ebbing, of course, with nearly half of U.S. Democrats disapproving of how Joe Biden has handled the conflict. Yeah. You know, um... Yeah, the position is, is indefensible, and you can see in London, 300,000 people, you know, um, in a demonstration. I mean, none of this is really being covered. It's just a kind of a parenthetical coverage, in my opinion, but it's pretty clear where most people stand. Um, yeah, so, yeah, there's another indication of all the... PR and propaganda that has to be has to be propagated when when your position is 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 poor at best. Okay, and then here we go. Here's another uh, article on um, from Al Jazeera. And now you can say this is all biased because it's Al Jazeera, but you know if you say that you you might want to check out what Al Jazeera is about and. Um, 
maybe check a little bit of it's kind of a similar to like, you know, can we trust the, the Palestinian health ministry to, uh, you know, to report good statistics? I, you know, if you, if you question Al Jazeera's journalistic integrity, um, then you should perhaps also um, question the New York Times and the Washington Post, right? And the Guardian, for that matter, or anybody. Um, in a recent segment on how Hamas frames the civilian casualties of Israelis' war on the Gaza Strip, CNN's Jake Tapper starts out by acknowledging that we do, we do know that innocent civilians in Gaza continue to be killed by Israeli strikes. It's impossible not to be affected by these horrific images that we're seeing, he states, as the humanitarian crisis in the enclave grows increasingly um, dire. Okay, so that's kind of against the uh, topic of the of the uh, article. What is the solution then? In Tapper's view, apparently, it is for Israel to continue killing innocent civilians and provide and presiding over humanitarian catastrophe because it is all Hamas's fault anyway. All right, see, so that's where you go. You get the one shoe and then the other one drops, right? Near the beginning of the segment, we are shown a clip of Queen Rania of Jordan responding to those who argue that a ceasefire will help Hamas, an argument she says amounts to endorsing and justifying the death of thousands of civilians. Then it is back to Tapper, who calls Queen Rania's remarks an interesting turn of phrase. I don't see how that's a turn of phrase. And goes on to wonder, condescendingly, whether it did not occur to Hamas when the organization undertook its operation on October 7 that Israel would retaliate in a way that would cause innocent Palestinians in Gaza to die. Well, yeah. That's the presumption, is that if you kill our people, we're going to come and kill your people. But as we know from Martin Luther King and Gandhi and other people, which were, you know, they, they're not perfect individuals, nor were their policies perfect, um, there was a point to their nonviolent resistance, right? Is that when you hit us with violence, we respond with protest, not with more violence, right? But with protest, right? Uh, so the point is, when... The news coverage gets so ridiculous that even the most staunch conservatives think what you're doing is horrible, as was the case in, in, in the South during the civil rights period and before, of course. Um, that's the power of it, right? That even people who were once your allies have to turn away and um, try to at least, you know, take themselves out of it, if not join, join the cause. But, yeah, so it's, it's always interesting when people twist these things in that way um yeah so what else in case anyone remains unconvinced after they kind of go through this argument he has also thrown in a clip of former u.s secretary of state hillary clinton who is evidently unsatisfied with the quanti quantity of blood she has already has on her hands and requires more people who are calling for a ceasefire now, do not understand Hamas. That is not possible. It would be such a gift to Hamas. Well, Hamas isn't the only entity in this situation, is it? Near the end of the segment, we are presented with the point of view of Israel as if that is not what we have been receiving this whole time. They, the Israelis, hear all the calls for a ceasefire. What they do not hear is anyone in the international community proposing any way for them to get back their 240 hostages that Hamas kidnapped. Well... I don't know. I think people are working on that, too. 
This is funny since, as NPR reported this month, a recent opinion poll in Israel found that almost two-thirds of the Israelis surveyed were in favor of a prisoner exchange, something Hamas has repeatedly offered, in which Israel would release its Palestinian detainees in exchange for the hostages held by Hamas. Why look to the inter international community when there is a solution right there? That's a good question. right? And so it's often that the public opinion is at odds with what is what the governments are purporting it to be. And that should be a red flag for most of us citizens, right? Um, yeah, it keeps going on about the history of exchanges. Um, but, I mean, this, this, this is um, uh, an opinion piece by Belen Fernandez. And, uh, you know, kind of makes sense to me, but it is an opinion piece. And, um, but, you know, I mean, it, it actually seems, seems like it's, it's a soft approach. I would, I would go much more. I mean, there, there's some citing of various things to support her point of view, but, um, I, I think it's much more dire than she's presenting it here. And she probably feels the same way, um, if she were, on, if, if she were commenting it and, and didn't have to do it through the lens of journalism, right? Because there are all sorts of people. Who are who are above her telling her what she can and cannot say right um, in the interests of the institution or the journalistic institution but um, anyway yeah these are just some of the articles that are coming out and you can see how twisted it, it a lot of it is right it's 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 you know in, in times of crisis people are, are desperate and when they're desperate they argue they make arguments that are desperate they make they, they, they get the PR, the spinning comes out. This is just like, um, just like post 9-11. And if there's any lesson that we've learned, um, that I've learned, certainly, is that um, we have learned nothing from that experience. And when I say we, the United States government and the Israeli government, um, they just keep doubling down on the same recipe that has only caused disaster. And the roots of this go back to Reagan... They go back to uh, George W. Bush, um, and we have to change. We have to get back into the Jimmy Carter. It's funny how people adore Jimmy Carter, but you know they're like, oh, well, we adore him because of who he is and what he does. But when it comes to being the president and his policies, right, people just give him no credibility whatsoever. But in, in a way, he's more aligned with the, with the MLKs and the and the Gandhis of the world, you know, he's trying to find a solution to these things. And of course, he was very instrumental and um, very successful, I might add, in uh, brokering the peace between Egypt and Israel um, and, and Jordan back, back in the old days, right? That was a major accomplishment because you can see that Egypt, you know, to this day um, is very reticent to, to, you know, do anything that appears to be contrary to their agreement with the peace agreement with Israel and uh, you know same goes with Jordan they might say things that are a little stinging but you know they they are pretty rock solid in terms of their support of that original peace agreement and how it's playing out uh, in the circumstances of today so I mean you got to give a lot of credit to not just those politicians who were able to broker that um, you know so it was Anwar Sadat and uh, uh, who's on the Israeli side with Menachem Begin? I don't remember. Um, 
you would think that you remember something like that, but uh, certainly Jimmy Carter and uh, King Hussein, the old one, you know, um, they were all pretty uh, instrumental in that, uh, in that, in that, in the evolution of that peace process, and that was a very successful one. So we got to get back to that frame of mind. Um, until we do, we're going to be mired in in tragedy after tragedy, terrorist um, attack after terrorist attack, um, massive failure, military failure, diplomatic failure. You know, um, we we need a we need we need a, some kind of power that can come in and see this in a in a in a dispassionate way so that we can get results um and, and the un seems like the obvious place to start but of course the united states does not really consider the un a legitimate a legitimate um, organization and in terms of the international criminal court it's it's really interesting how that works too because you know the international criminal court will go out and prosecute people who are prosecutable in a way right so you know if you go to Bosnia conflict and you know con some conflict in Asia or things that are considered more minor on a scale of world events you know we can get those guys but when it, gets, it comes to going after George W. Bush or Putin or anybody like that for the war crimes that they've propagated um, you know even Henry Kissinger right these people are off off limits they either can't or refuse to uh, you know, uh, bring these people to some kind of reckoning in terms of justice. But, um, you know, and you might say, well, you know, world leaders are given, given immunity for this and that. And the next thing, just like Trump was for his personal transgressions. But, um, you know, at some point, I think we have to get out of that, that reasoning. It, it's, it's a little bit antiquated, I think, at this point. It doesn't serve the greater purposes of justice and, and uh, world peace, honestly. Um, so I think we're kind of getting a little long in the tooth as usual here, but uh, that's my, my update for now. I'm gonna go over to The Guardian and see what they have, just in the interest of following through on some of the new things, because I might just follow up with another. Um, here you go, Is Israel foreign minister calls on UN chief to resign. Of course, that's more pressure, PR pressure. Um, what else? Nobody could help us. Families tell of Gaza trauma after return to UK. Yeah. Don't have a lot of coverage. It seems like coverage is, is waning just a little bit, even though um, this thing is just really starting, I think. Um, the Israelis are going to go in and certainly into northern Gaza and pretty much have a scorched earth policy. Um, it seems pretty clear that that's going to happen. There's a lot of opinion pieces. I think I might go to those um, in another show, maybe next show. So here's one. Everyone loves diversity and inclusion until you stick up for Palestinians. <laughs> it's true. I was invited to a school panel that wasn't even about Israel and Palestine. Then some parents accused me of hate speech. Uh, a humanitarian pause in Gaza will just prolong our suffering, one of them says. 
But I think it'll be worthwhile to go into some of the opinion pieces on on either um, Guardian or Al Jazeera, but uh, I'm pretty sure the Associated Press will have some. They have less in the way of uh, of opinion pieces, just given the given the nature of their operation. They're supposed to be even more neutral. They're supposed to be reporting the news more or less, and not not really commenting on it because they feed into you know other news organizations. And then they can do whatever they want with the facts. But anyway, I mean, that's going to have to be it for November 14th, 2023. Yeah. Another edition of the By Job Show with Giovanni McGuire. Um, I'm going to try to come back and follow through on some of these opinion pieces in a, in a couple of days. But until then, signing off and have a good one. Take care. <laughs>